Good morning. So quick word of announcement. We have new pew Bibles, but since we don't have pews, they're not in the pews. But if you need a Bible, there is a, a Bible in the back. We also got two giant print Bibles, so you don't have to be ashamed. You can go grab a giant print Bible if you need to. But by giant, it only means giant compared to the typical minuscule font. It's like giant in terms of normal for a pew Bible, if that makes any sense. But there are Bibles in the back if you um, want to grab one. We've decided to quit putting the Scripture on the screen. Not that that's wrong, but just to further encourage you to use your own copy of God's Word. We want, we want you to use it. We want you to trust it. We want you to see that what we say is in there, and, and surely on the screen helps with that. But also, if you're holding it, you can take that same Bible home and read the same page and read the same Scripture throughout the week that we're reading together here. So making the Scriptures more part of your daily life. And of course, we just came out of Reformation Month, which means you've spent some time reading or listening to the Scriptures. And, and every Reformation Month, we quit showing it on the screen to emphasize the printed Word. And so we're just trying to continue doing that throughout the year now to emphasize the printed Word of Scripture. So somebody's already grabbing a giant print. Excellent. They're being used. Awesome. All right. So we are starting a new series Today and it's going to run through Christmassy time, and it's not a Christmassy message. So we'll just see where we get. Um, I always kind of think I know where we're going to land, and then we get into it, and it's never quite like I think. So we're going to dive in either way um, to the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you have your bulletin, um, if you look on the front of the page, it has the word Ecclesiastes spelled out. Now this book is a bit of an enigma. Um, how many of you have read the book of Ecclesiastes before? You ever read that book, read that book and go, whoa, this kind of feels different than everything else I've read. You know, we tend to have this, you know, if you, especially if you listen to K-Love, what's K-Love's logo or logo, slogan? Um, I got two completely different mottos there. I was going more towards the positive, encouraging K-Love um, instead of the, you know, here's the plan. You know, you can give the $10 a month plan, or it gets down to the plan, the plan I call the I'm so poor you probably shouldn't be helping us plan. Um, is the la- Okay, sorry. I had no intention of going there. That's, that's y'all's fault. Okay, so positive encouraging has a tendency to be the evangelical motto. If you love Jesus, you smile. If you love Jesus, you're happy. If you love Jesus and you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you want to get on to this guy and say, dude, you missed you miss the memo. In Christianity, we're happy. We don't say everything's a waste of my time. Right? No, that's kind of depressing. It says, you know, you should increase in knowledge. That just leads to sorrow. You know, work hard. No, you're going to die. Build up wealth and pass it on to your children. Yeah, your child may be an idiot, though, and squander your labors. All right, this is what Ecclesiastes is going to set us up for. There's a lot of, eh, sometimes it's considered the pessimistic book. Sometimes it's considered the depressing book, or it's like the other side of the coin. There's Proverbs, as you train a child up in the way he will go, and he will not depart from it, even when he's old. Ecclesiastes is the other side of that. Doesn't matter what you do, he's going to make his own stupid choices anyway. All right? And it feels like that in life, that there's two completely opposite vantage points from which wisdom is attained. And as we dive into Ecclesiastes, what we're going to find is not that Ecclesiastes has a different take or a different perspective. It's just asking and addressing a different question. It's dealing with a different topic. It's still biblical wisdom. In fact, the the ultimate end of biblical wisdom in Ecclesiastes will be exactly the same as it is in Proverbs, as it is in all of the wisdom 
literature in your Bible. So let's start first by taking the enigma out of the title of the book. So if you look at Ecclesiastes, that probably does not sound like any English word you know, period. So let's unpack what the word itself means. So just follow me on this, and then I'll make more sense of it. It's a transliteration, letter for letter, of the Greek translation of the Hebrew word koheleth, which is their word for public speaker. You follow that? So let me show you in the text what's happening, just in the word. So if you want to like take your marker, your pencil, and like kind of diagram the word itself, Ecclesiastes, if you'll see in there, ek lesia, and you take the S-T-E-S, draw a line between those. My pen doesn't work, even though you can't see this, so that's helpful. Ecclesia, stees. You see those two words? So ecclesia, some of you, my nerds in the room, might recognize that word, ecclesia. What is ecclesia? Church. This is the New Testament Greek word for church. So, quick side note, just this for the nerds in the room who care, the language, Greek language has no C, period. There's no C. That's Latin. So anytime you see a Greek word that has a C in it, you're actually saying the Latin word that's based on the Greek word. So like cyclops, it's not cyclops, it's, it's kyclops. So you're saying the Latin version, not the Greek version. All right, so anyway, you take ecclesia, change the C's, scratch those out, and put K's. Now you have the Greek word for church. So, hold on. This book is called The Church? No, not exactly. Here's the idea. In the New Testament, the word church is kind of a new term relative to the religion, that Christianity's new, but in Judaism, it's not really what they did. They had the synagogue where they would gather together and study the scriptures. But this word church or ecclesia is kind of new to the scene. It's really a Greek understanding of a word brought into Christianity. And this is what the word basically was in their culture. You have a political rally, you gather people together, and you have a meeting, and somebody is leading that meeting. Somebody's in the front, somebody's at the podium, someone's talking, somebody's preaching at that gathering. And so in Greek, ek. Colossia is the word called out. So they're just called out from their surroundings to come hear a message. Well, in the early church, that makes sense, right? They've gathered together. They've been called out by the Lord. We could say election is that same root idea. They've been called out to come hear the message of Jesus. And so this word, Ecclesiastes, is just the person at the podium talking to the church. Follow what I'm saying? That's all the word means. It's, and so in a lot of translations, you'll see... Ecclesiastes starts off with the words of the preacher. Well, literally, it would be the words of the Ecclesiastes, or in Hebrew, the words of the Koheleth. Koheleth. That word sounds fun to say, but I'll trip it up, so I'm not going to use it. We're going to say preacher instead, but that's the Hebrew, Koheleth. Words of the preacher. The guy at the front of the podium talking to everyone who has been gathered, been called out together. Now, this works particularly well in Jewish wisdom literature. You've read the book of Proverbs. You, you'll hear things, almost all the Proverbs start, especially the early Proverbs, where it'll say, listen, son, be attentive to my wisdom. Like, open your ear, hear what I have to say so that you will gain understanding. It's, it's a father, sometimes it's a mother, calling out to his child, saying, listen. So there's a gathering metaphor built into the Jewish concept of wisdom. Come hear 
what I have to say. And, and several times in Proverbs specifically, wisdom is personified as a woman. So it's this female, this lady wisdom, going out of the streets and she's calling out. And what should you do when you hear her vo- voice? You should come. You should beckon to this voice. You should respond. So Ecclesiastes is, the metaphor is, Wisdom is now speaking out. Wisdom is embodied here, and a person, the preacher, is going to speak. So gather together and hear what this preacher has to say. So it says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. It doesn't give us any more specific detail about who this is other than that phrase. Now, the most literal interpretation then, the son of David, the king of Jerusalem. Um, David had many sons. And if we talk about literal, born to David, only one of those sons was king of Jerusalem. And everybody knows who I'm talking about. Who is this? Solomon is historically understood to be the writer of the book of Song of Solomon. We don't know that for sure. He doesn't write it down. But he is the most likely candidate. We, if he's a son of David, if it's not Solomon, and we study Jewish history, read First and Second Kings. Anybody read First and Second Kings in the, the Reformation reading? How many of those guys qualified to do what Solomon's probably doing here. It's like you read the Hezekiah, maybe. You know, it's like, yeah, if you read that story, no, that doesn't end well. Of course, Solomon, we're going to be honest, doesn't end well either. But we do know Solomon is given a gift from the Lord, that he would be wise, that there would be none like him in all the earth. He would have the wisdom beyond his years, wisdom beyond the years of the ages. And so, historically, did Solomon write this? Probably. But that's as far as I can go. It doesn't actually say Solomon wrote it. But he's a very good candidate, and historically, that's what most people have landed on. So Solomon is now speaking as the preacher to whoever will listen. Have you called together? You're hearing the voice of wisdom. He's gathered you together, and he says, now let's lay it out. Now let's talk about that word wisdom for just a second. So really, we've only done one verse. We will move more quickly than that in the future. But for the moment, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Wisdom literature, so he's going to talk about wisdom. Let's spend a few moments defining what wisdom is. So there was a common saying when I was a kid. I thought my dad made this up. Turns out later, which is a common saying. But uh, and this is how it went. A smart man learns from his mistakes. Right? That, that is smart. You, you do something wrong, and the next time you, you don't have to make the same stupid error. So we call that learning you know, by experience. Well, another way you could learn is... Uh, Someone else makes the mistake, so, so a smart man learns from his own mistakes, but the truly wise learn from everyone else's mistakes. I, I saw you do that, and it didn't work out, and so I'm going to not do that. I can see where this is going. In fact, that's really how we think about the word itself, wisdom. So wisdom is generally understood, filling in an outline, your first blank, wisdom is generally understood pragmatically. Now, that word, we throw that word around a lot. It has a lot of kind of nuance and meaning today. But pragmatics emphasize the end result of something. If you're living in such a way, what result does it produce? In fact, pragmatics are very important in a lot of areas of life. Um, It's very important. If you're gardening, you're very concerned about whether or not that garden literally produces fruit. Now, you could just garden for the delight of gardening. But really, your goal is to produce something, right? There's, that's, that's wisdom, that's the idea. And you know, from experience, pouring Roundup on this is not going to make it grow. Maybe an obvious example. Um, but water, 
You know, fertilizer maybe. Experiment with different kinds of fertilizer. There was a guy in the church I grew up in, and back then I thought he was ancient, and now, now he's really, you know, he was probably only, you know, late 50s back then when I was a kid. You know how that is. You kind of see, but all day long, every day of his life, he just worked the pragmatics of gardening. And he had figured out the perfect way to fertilize any given plant in his garden through trial and error. He'd learned by experience. And you could say when it came to planting and to gardening, he was the wisest man I knew, period, regarding those things. If, if a flower was supposed to be this big in his garden, it would be like this. It was unbelievable what he had learned. The wisdom. He knew what series of actions led to which end. So there's a sense in which wisdom then is this idea of seeing where a particular path leads, or having the outline, wisdom is seeing the end. You know, if you open this door and you go down that journey, you know where that path leads. And if you think about it, if you've kind of been there, done that mentality in life, you look at people in your life, especially younger people usually than you, you see them choosing a path. They've really only taken one step on that path, and you have a gut-wrenching reaction, ooh, no, no, not that path. I know where that path leads, either because you yourself walked that path and you know how poorly it turned out, or a family member walked that path and you know where that path leads. There's a wisdom there. You've seen it. You've either through experience or through observation, you know that walking down that path has a poor end. So wisdom is seeing the end and taking appropriate action to get the best result. That's the basic way we think about wisdom. We see that even in the scriptures, the idea of you, you set out beforehand, you know where you're going, and you take actions to get there. One proverb referenced the ants. They store up, you know, there's that idea, we, you want something in the winter, you store it up now. Well, that's a particular end. You know what you need to do to get there. So wisdom is seeing that need, seeing that progression, and saying, okay, well, I'm going to take these steps to make sure I get there. Well, that's... That is wisdom in a certain sense. It's a pragmatic wisdom, but we'll find in the New Testament especially, and very clearly in the book of Ecclesiastes, that version of wisdom is short-sighted. That version of wisdom is often useless. That version of wisdom is often filled with sorrow. For instance, um, we planted a garden earlier this year, built in a greenhouse, wrapped it in plastic. It was one of those, like, hardly spent any money, used leftover lumber, felt really proud of all this stuff. She goes in there, she plants lots of stuff, and it is just bursting at the seams with green life. But we have goats. It turns out plastic is not very durable. And if a goat wants to go through plastic, it just goes through plastic. It opens this plastic, goes in, and not only does it have a nice, humid, warm environment, but it's a buffet. And you know what happens to that. We didn't, we didn't get anything from any part of our garden this year because the goats got it, enjoyed it. And you see something like that, and you immediately, I think of you know, the, the old expression, no good deed goes unpunished. You know? Or this, to put it in the Proverbs way, or Ecclesiastes way, verse 2 says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Complete waste of my Time. So let's unpack that expression for a moment. Vanity of vanities. There's, there's a sense in which that's a good translation, and there's a sense in which it doesn't quite get the idea of the Hebrew here. The idea is everything is a fleeting breath. So it's emphasizing the shortness 
of life. It's emphasizing the, the meaningless or the, the ultimate fruitlessness of many of the things we do. So let's just read. The, if you have a, a, um, a paragraph version of the Scriptures, you'll see all of this is in poetry form. And let's just read through this section. It goes through verse 11. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Now, this under the sun is going to be a very common expression. And this is just a reference to our time here, our life. There's a sense in which it's a temporal expression. So what do you gain by laboring all of these days? A generation goes, and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. So if you think about his worldview, the sun goes over the top, and it goes underneath, and it just does it again the next day. And what's it do the next day? It just keeps going in unceasing circular motion. It just continues the same pattern Every single day. Have you ever wanted the sun just to do something different? Actually, no. I kind of like this pattern, you know? Like, don't change. This is good. But he's using it as a negative illustration. here. You ever feel like life is like that? It's just the same stupid thing happens over and over again. I feel like every political season is just this. It's the same conversation. Different people, different faces. It's like Dragnet. The names have been changed, but the story is the same. It's just over and over and over again. The wind blows to the south, and then it goes to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits, the wind returns. So, emphasizing that nothing really changed. It just went from one side to the other side, back and around, and circle, and it's just the same wind. It's just here. Again, all the streams run to the sea, but the sea is not Now, some of us, especially if you're more scientifically minded, might think, well, this is the water cycle. But imagine in his worldview what's what's seeing here. All these rivers flow down into the sea, but it doesn't fill up. That's just a metaphor for life. It's no matter how much water flows into that sea, it's just not satisfied. It keeps needing more. Nothing really changes. There's no progress says, to the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, and man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Now, he's not saying he doesn't see things and experience some satisfaction. We're going to walk through that in the coming chapters. But in the end, it's just not satisfying. Have you ever worked on a project and you're really excited about the project and you you get this stuff together, you you kind of accomplish your task, and then, okay, well, that one's done. Got to do another task now. Something else has to fill my time and, and occupy this. It's just, it keeps going. It's never truly satisfied. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new. Under the sun. You probably, if you know anything about Ecclesiastes, you probably know that phrase. And then chapter 3, there's a time for this, a time for that. But there's nothing new under the sun. Now, this is one of the depressing things about studying history. Um, you study, especially church history. That's, that's where my, my particular experience is. You study church history, and you, every time you see some problem happening in the church, I think to myself, oh, well, that's happening now. 
just the same stupid thing happening again. Or some new thing we finally do in Christianity. You study church history, you go, no, we tried that already. It didn't work. Um, or, you know, a change in music styles. That happened in the 1400s, guys. We were debate over whether or not you could have orchestra music in the church, the stuff that they were doing out in the popular circle. You know, it's the same debate. Nothing really changes. I know sometimes I like to think that part of the debate is over. The church has matured past the, the music debate. And you know what? That, it's just not going to happen. We're going to debate the same thing over and over and over again. There's nothing new under the sun in that way. Is there a thing which is said, see, this is new. That's already happened in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Now you think, well, if you study history, we know about all sorts of things. Really think about that for a second. How much of history do we actually know? This thin sliver of history, and be honest, who writes history? The winners, right? How much of history do we really know? In fact, you study history, you'll find out just how little we know about some things. Um, the resources, the, the evidence, the primary sources, so to speak, they're all subjective. They're usually all distanced by time. And you go back and read, think, well, let's study about the Trojan War. We have like one document that's almost half a millennia separated from the actual events, and it's written in poetry form. Like, yeah, we'll use this as though it's clear, solid, definite history. That's how they treat it. If it's the Bible, you know, nothing can be true, even though it's more narrative form, more historically oriented. All of this, except we'll take everything else that's obviously useless and use it as history. Point being, the little thing we do know is really insignificant compared to how much history has actually happened. The chances of someone knowing your name, the chances of you outliving Two generations. I know my great-grandparents' names on one side. And I don't know their parents' names. You rewind the clock a hundred years, it's hard to imagine that they would be forgotten. Even if I knew their names, they'd only be names on a piece of paper, perhaps on a tombstone. But that's it. There's a vanity to this. So see what the Ecclesiastes, the Koheleth, the preacher What's he saying here? Let's fill in some more blanks on your outline. So Ecclesiastes acknowledges the short-term and long-term vanity of working for progress. So in America, we have a strong bent towards progress. We love progress. We love pragmatics. I mean, we really, in a lot of ways, feel like God gave two great things to humanity, the gospel and capitalism. Right? As, as though the capitalism is near the gospel. Now, not, don't get me wrong. I like capitalism. I like democracy or democratic republic, if we're going to be particular. But there's things like that that, yes, I like this. I think it's a, a good thing to do in our nation. It's better than other forms of government, certainly. But there's this real truth in which we accomplish nothing. Like, you look at our world and say, oh, we're better now. Are we, though? And why do we still need police? Why do we still need security cameras? Why do we still lock our doors? We didn't used to lock our door. You know, okay, come on. That wasn't crime. You know, so we're, Actually, when you say that, you're saying it's worse, not better. Like We've not fixed any of these problems. No matter what we do, it's all vanity. So here's what Ecclesiastes is really trying to, to get us down to see. No matter what you do, 
under the sun, in the end, it's not going to have been worth it. So, do we call that pessimism? Well, in a certain sort of way, yes. I like to think, I'm big into the you know, next generation sort of thinking. So, on the, the farm at Redemption Square, I always think about, now, if I work on this oak tree, my great-great-grandchildren might be able to swing on a branch under this tree. But the reality is, who knows that they'll even own it? Who knows that a hurricane won't blow it over? Who knows that that tree won't get struck by lightning and burn down to the ground? There's so many ways in which no matter what we do, in the end, it's going to be fruitless. Now, if we read this and we stop there, it's easy to hear the message of Ecclesiastes and say, well, why bother? Does it matter if it's, if it's not going to work out in the end? Of the, no matter how nice of a house I build, it could burn down in a few years. No matter how awesome of a church we plant, it won't be here in a century. I mean, how many churches to this day exist that were planted by the Apostle Paul? Zero. None. Not even a church is going to live forever. Why do anything at all if all of it is vanity? We're not done with the bad news. Let's keep going, and then we'll, we'll get to good news eventually. All right, verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. And that flies right in the face of most of our ideologies. Our ideologies. You think about the prosperity gospel. In some form or another, the prosperity gospel always says, if you do A, we guarantee B. If you give this money to the church, I guarantee you won't have financial problems. No, we don't. In the early church... They gave everything to the Lord. And did that guarantee that they would have happiness and success in life? No, a lot of them died crucified, died martyred. A lot of them were suffering and without even basic necessities. So what is, made, what is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. So if this is Solomon, we know that he's been granted the special wisdom from the Lord. He's sought out wisdom. He's studied everything. And the smarter he gets, the more experience he has, the more knowledge he acquires. Look at what he says. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Now, anybody who's studied any topic can relate to what Solomon is saying there. Even in theology, I love theology. It's my favorite topic to talk about. But the deeper you get in, the more you realize the more nuanced you have to be. And there's a sense in which the more theology you know, the harder it is to say anything without being worried you're saying something wrong. Especially the more I talk about the Trinity, the more I understand the Trinity, the scarier I am to describe it to you. 
because I'm going to commit heresy if I say anything. And almost every illustration I used as a child, now I look at it and go, well, well that's a type of modalism, or, or that's, that's not right. That's actually misunderstands. I'm making God divided into parts if I say it that way. And, I, and it's just overwhelming to think about all the things I can say incorrectly the more you know about a given topic. And that's why, you know, you go to a class and the professor's talking and a student asks a question and the professor's like, ah. And he has to hesitate because in the question there was like 8,000 different presuppositions that were wrong and now he doesn't even know how to communicate to you because he's got to unpack for two hours everything you thought you knew when you asked the question before he never get to the question. It just makes everything more complicated in life. Or maybe that was a soapbox. I don't know. You know what I'm talking about though, right? Anybody relate to that? It's like the more you know about something, the, it almost handicaps your ability to have a normal conversation with someone else. And so I get really excited about movies. One of my favorite movies is, is Les Mis, the musical movie. Right, at least one person in the room cares, okay? I love, love, love this movie. And somebody asked me about that movie one time. They had watched it one because I had recommended it. And they, they, I, they said they had watched it and liked it. And I was like, oh, my God, I love how in the movie you've got law versus grace. And grace is, is embodied with Javert. I mean, not Javert, Jean Valjean. And then the law is embodied by Javert. And they have this you know, conflict warring between them and which one's going to have it out in the end. And grace is so powerful that it doesn't even have to defeat the law because the law ends up killing itself because it can't withstand under its own burden. And I'm just thinking about all this stuff. And the person looked at me and was like, I'm never talking to you about movies again. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, I just like, okay, fine. Now I don't even have a friend to talk to. You know, there's this depressing nature to having a lot of knowledge about something, whatever your topic is. And especially you get in a circle, you start talking about something, and by default, somebody gets excluded. Anytime y'all talk about sports, that's how I feel. I'm like, okay, well, I'll give this a few minutes, and then I'll chime back in. You know, it's just how it is, whatever the topic is. The more you know, the more vexation that can come from that. So we get to this point. In Ecclesiastes, to be sure, the good news has not come yet. That's going to come later, but let's, uh, for the sake of our time and for the sake of not leaving here depressed and hopelessness, um, let's, let's wrap this up in a meaningful way. So let's fill in the last blanks, and then let's uh, bring this to a New Testament. So while wisdom can be described as having good vision of our circumstances and then living purposefully, and you can, you can call wisdom that. It's, you see well... You see the circumstances and you live purposefully within those circumstances. Biblical wisdom is actually going to go a step further. Biblical wisdom is concerned with living obediently regardless of our circumstances. Obediently regardless of our circumstances. I had a job one time. I was a security officer. And everything we did was really fake if that makes sense, we weren't there to provide security. We were there to provide a checkbox on their liability policy for the campus. You know what I'm saying? Like, our weapon was a radio and a flashlight. And literally everything in our handbook, any kind of legitimate emergency, period, step one was call 911. It was like, is there really any point in my job at all. And the reality was a lot of the things we did were absolutely pointless. I'm totally. And then some of the paperwork we would do, no one ever read. It was like, fill out this paperwork as though we're pretending to care. And then this is going to go into a shredder tomorrow. 
know what I'm talking about? Like absolute vanity. So I would be assigned with a task knowing full well that this was an absolute waste of my time. Anybody been in that scenario before? How easy is it to obey an order when you know it's pointless? It's hard. And children do this all the time. They, they reach that, not quite teenage, for my, my, they're, they're getting there now. Um, I tell them to do something, and they want to know why they're supposed to do it. Now, I'm, I'm cool with giving my children wheat reasons and helping them understand, but in this particular moment, what's the reason why? I said so, and I've responded that way a few times, maybe, maybe a little inappropriately. It's like, well, why do we, I said so, and that's kind of my way of, you know, don't talk again until the task is complete. All right, but we have this built-in struggle with doing things when we don't see the reason. We don't see the method behind it. So here's the thing. is in the Bible, in biblical obedience, God's not always giving us answers. He's not always telling us why. He's not always connecting the dots. Oftentimes, he's just saying, I said so. That's how many of the Old Testament laws end. Do such and such. I am the Lord. That's what he means. You honor the Sabbath because he told you to. I don't get it. I don't see how it's useful. I want to know why it's fruitful. I want to know why it matters. Well, does it matter in the end? Yes. Because every act of obedience we perform, every means of obedience, every act of faithfulness in our lives is us holding up a banner, giving glory to God. That is your purpose. And that's what needs to be our immediate purpose in everything we do. You remember what he said? We talked about this a lot last week with Soli Deo Gloria, that every decision, everything we do in life comes down to the fact that whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all, how's that end? To the glory of God. So it's not about the immediate pragmatism of anything. I mean, sure, I I want my crops to grow fruit. I want to eat from the fruit. I want my evangelism to be fruitful. I want my disciple-making to matter. I want our church to actually grow and reach the community and proclaim the gospel. But in the end, the only piece of any of this that matters is that we obey. And in that obedience, the world will see our light and God gets the glory. That's the piece. Maybe our obedience is to fail, but be faithful anyway. Maybe we're called to be Job and suffer, but be loyal to the Lord anyway. Maybe we're called to be like the Apostle Paul and have the shipwreck, be beat, suffer in so many ways, but say these things I count as dung compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ, my Savior. Maybe that's all we've been called to do is in each moment, in every part of our lives, just to acknowledge God's worth. To say the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. To say whether this conversation was fruitful or not, I proclaim the name of Jesus. Whether this helped me in life or not, I obeyed the word of the cross. Whether this produced any long-term fruit, I showed love to my neighbor. Whether it worked out in some pragmatic way or not, I was faithful to Proclaim the name of Christ. We use pragmatics so often to undergird or undercut our obedience to the Lord. 
So let's think about how the gospel comes into this. How we're going to close this out. So Jesus has provided the means for us. We think, well, how do we connect that to the book of Ecclesiastes? All his name, all this work. There's a very important way this connects. We need to make sure we all rest together on this truth. We have a tendency to seek justification. We have a tendency to save ourselves, to redeem ourselves. And let me tell you right now, all is vain if you follow that path. But we said one version of wisdom was learning from your mistakes. One version of wisdom was learning from other people's mistakes. The most important biblical form of wisdom is just learning from the God and Father who knows all and obeying what he tells us to do. Well, in his wisdom, he knew that we could not save ourselves, that we could not redeem ourselves, that we could not faithfully finish out the task on our own. So Jesus became a man. He took our place. He lived our life perfectly as we ought to have done. He was the perfect Israelite, perfectly obedient to his father, yet he was crucified. The weight of wrath was poured out on him. The sin that belonged to us was designated to him, and he bore our wrath on the cross. He said, it is finished. When he rose from the dead, he did something new under the sun. He defeated the power of sin and death in his resurrection. He granted to us in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit the power to live faithfully, not of our own doing, in any way, any stretch of the imagination, by relying on Him. In the gospel, we call on the name of the Lord. And now we know that everything we do in life is redeemed and has purpose. That in some way, I get to contribute to the coming of the glory of the Lord. Scott referenced it in Romans 8 earlier. The surpassing glory that is coming makes everything else in comparison I can hold up my banner and say great is the Lord I can hold up my banner and say Jesus is Lord I can hold up my banner and say Jesus is worth it he's worth the trial he's worth the suffering he's worth any pain because I know my Savior lives He has conquered sin he has conquered death and there is a hope on the other end that makes everything I do in this life worth it, even if on this short-term and even seemingly long-term scale, the pragmatics don't work. When you look at things through the glory of the resurrection, all is worth it. So examine your own heart this morning or afternoon. What are you failing to obey in? Because you're, you're that kid saying, but why? Why do I have to do blank. God's saying, because I told you to. But he follows that with a response, with an answer to the question, it will be worth it in the end. And one day we will see it from his perfectly wise perspective. We'll know that it was worth it in the end.